I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Supreme Court is hearing arguments today over federal coronavirus relief dollars allocated to private schools. Then, a coalition of statewide organizations want to ensure no communities miss out on broadband expansion. And doctors say black Mississippians are at an increased risk for cancer, a side effect of healthcare deserts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Supreme Court hearing oral arguments today about whether pandemic relief funds can be appropriated to private schools. The state legislature set aside $10 million of ARPA funds, that's the American Rescue Plan Act money, in 2022 to offer private schools a pandemic relief grant program. But Section 208 of the state constitution says funds can't be appropriated towards any school that is not considered a free school, meaning public. Because of that provision, the organization Parents for Public Schools claims the pandemic relief for private institutions violates the state constitution. Attorney Will Bartwell is senior counsel for Democracy Forward, the nonprofit law firm that filed the lawsuit against the state of Mississippi. Section 208 says that no funds at all shall be appropriated to any school not conducted as a free school which, of course, means private schools because they charge tuition. Uh, So we filed a lawsuit on behalf of Parents for Public Schools in June of 2022, just before the program was set to go into effect. And later that year, uh, a Hines County Chancery Court enjoined the program. The judge blocked the program from going into effect. And so now the state has appealed. You'll be arguing before the state Supreme Court today. That's right. What is your argument beyond that it is unconstitutional because Mississippi is arguing that it is not? And are you both looking at the same constitution? We are. The The portion of the Mississippi constitution that's relevant here is not in dispute. That's Section 208. We see this as a very straightforward case. Section 208 says you can't appropriate funds to any school that's not conducted as a free school, and yet the legislature did exactly that. 
anytime you're talking about a provision of a constitution that was written in the 1800s, you know, sometimes reasonable people can look at it and neither of them be able to make heads or tails of it. But this is a very straightforward portion of the Mississippi Constitution. When the case went before the Hines County Chancery Court, what was the state's argument? Money laundering. So the state's view of Section 208 is that the legislature can send money to private schools as long as it funnels the money through a state agency first. That seems like a silly argument to me. The Chancery Court in Hines County uh, also was not persuaded by that. I don't see any way to square that with the way the the drafters of Section 208 wrote it. So we're talking about taking federal dollars that come are appropriated to the state through the opera fund, which was for pandemic relief efforts, allocating it to a state agency to allocate to private schools. Correct. The way that this program was supposed to work, according to the legislation, is that the money would be sent from the state treasury to the Department of Finance and Administration, and that the Department of Finance and Administration would be the one to administer this grants program uh, private schools could apply to and then receive chunks of up to $100,000 in public funds. And so it's for infrastructure for these private schools? Ostensibly, yes, but the legislation had so little uh, accountability built into it that it was virtually no oversight at all once the money went out the door. Seeing that the state has allocated funds for a voucher program for students with special needs to attend private schools, they are public funds. What is wrong with doing this in your estimation? This is the most blatant violation of Section 208 that I I think you could imagine. This is exactly what Section 208 says can't be done, is sending public money directly to private schools. You know, I don't know uh, why that has never come up at the Mississippi Supreme Court. Uh, I know that in this case, though, we have a much narrower question. Um, I'm sure there would be reasonable arguments on both sides of that case, but this is this is just a different case. This is a straight appropriation of public money to private schools. If you had to look at your crystal ball, how do you think the justices will rule in this, and how soon do you think they will rule? Well, I, I'm always very careful not to... Uh, not to even look into my crystal ball, much less try to guess. But um, the Supreme Court operates under uh, what they call a 270-day rule, uh, which means that they try to announce decisions no more than 270 days after the parties have written their last brief, which in this case was in September of 2023. So we are expecting a decision in this case, no later than the end of June 2024. What is interesting about these monies is that public schools cannot apply for it. Why is that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, One of the arguments that we've gotten from uh, the Mid-South Association of Independent Schools, which is a conglomerate of private schools, one of the arguments they've made is that they needed this money to level the playing field with, private, with public schools, uh, which is funny to me, given uh, how systemically public schools have been underfunded in this state. But setting that aside, uh, 
the legislature did actually create a funding program for public schools to have to do their own infrastructure projects. But unlike the private schools program, the public schools didn't get a grants program. They got a loan program. So they have to pay their money back? Yes. Why did you take on this case? The Mississippi legislature has a long history of undermining public schools. It's not like this is the first time that that's ever happened. This is, though, the most blatant attempt that I can recall seeing uh, for diverting public money toward private schools. Uh, and, you know, if if the line in the sand can't be drawn on this one, then, you know, I, I don't know where you would draw it. One of my, my co-counsel, Rob McDuff, put it this way, that if Section 208 doesn't mean what it says, doesn't preclude any funds from going to private schools, then there'd be nothing to prevent the legislature from appropriating $100 million or $500 million to private schools. You know, The, the Constitution is very clear on how much money the, the legislature is allowed to send to private schools, and that number is $0. Why should people listening and people who may not be listening care about this? Well, public schools are the centerpiece of our democracy. You know, public schools are where our children go to learn how to be good citizens, to uh, be good citizens to their peers, to uh, to their local communities – Public schools are where children go to learn how to participate in their democracy, not just uh, learning about the right to vote, but how to use that right to vote when they're old enough to do it. And undermining public schools necessarily undermines our democracy. Will Bartwell, senior counsel with Democracy Forward, addressing the Mississippi State Supreme Court. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you coming in and, and speaking with us about this important issue. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Next, a coalition of organizations wants to ensure no communities miss out on broadband expansion. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The federal government has allocated $1.2 billion for broadband expansion in Mississippi. Community organizations want to make sure the unserved are not left out. These funds are distributed by the Office of Broadband Expansion and Accessibility of Mississippi, also known as BEAM. During a news conference at the Capitol yesterday, Democratic Representative Otis Anthony of Indianola shared concerns that local leaders in the Delta are not being involved in the important discussions. We will continue to emphasize the importance of equitable broadband access for all of our communities. Telehealth is a major resource lacking in the rural area. Therefore, we must enhance the accessibility and the availability and the affordability of preventive health care services. There are economic 
and educational opportunities that come with expanding broadband access. We are pushing that every corner of the state, especially those rural areas like I live in, can have affordable access to technology for every public school student, enhancing both in-school and at-home learning. We will push for policies in the BEAM office that promotes minority vendor participation in broadband infrastructure. That's right. There is an economic impact because access to high-speed internet is a catalyst for economic growth. It enabled businesses to expand their opportunities and their operations, reach new markets, and enhance productivity. We're also looking for broadband connectivity that fosters an entrepreneurship environment, allowing individuals, minorities, to start and grow their own businesses, creating job opportunities within their own communities. And yes, we must have a workforce development component because high-speed internet facilities facilitates online education and training programs, providing these residents with opportunities to uh, acquire new skills and stay competitive in this workforce that we live in. Sally Doty is director of BEAM. She tells our Will Stribling the office has held many community engagement meetings across the state, and they have surveyed every community to understand where broadband is lacking. Our office has met with elected officials. We've hosted a lot of meetings at our office. Uh, we have gone out and met with officials in, in their areas. We've been to the supervisors' conference twice, hosted a booth there. I've spoken at the Mississippi Municipal League, and then we had a booth there so individual elected officials could come and, and kind of talk about their area. Uh, we held a legislative day where we were available to talk to legislators And then in addition to that, we have had some community engagement meetings across the state. I mean, I know myself, I have been to the Delta over 15 times. Uh, So I understand that they would like us to be in every single community, but that is just not possible. So we have reached out in areas that we know are unserved and areas that have need uh, to to talk with individuals there, talk to stakeholders there, and um, we have just completed, or will complete tomorrow, uh, a tour of all of the planning and development districts in Mississippi, you know, because we do recognize that we can't get out to every individual community, uh, but those planning and development districts, uh, you know, serve those smaller communities and, and work with them. Uh, to help make sure that they have information on various federal grants. So we thought that would be another good way to make sure information is given out as needed. Another concern was just about affordability aspect of, of getting connected to broadband. Are there concerns over that going away? You know, it stopped accepting applications on February 7th, and, uh, and the current funding for the program only lasts through April. Uh, so they called for the state to develop at the state-level long-term affordability program. Is that something that y'all would be interested in exploring and you know developing and maybe pitching to the legislature at a, at a later time? We are concerned about that ACP program and the fact that it, it may not continue. Uh, my understanding is there is some talk 
uh, right now about perhaps reforming the program somewhat and that it might continue. So uh, we will wait to see how that shapes up at the federal level. If it does go away completely, we would certainly be open to looking at some sort of, of state program. I also know there are some groups in the state who have talked about this, uh, working on it with just philanthropic money. And I think that is an alternative we would like to pursue as well. So I think there are a lot of options for affordability. We know that is a concern with many people across the state of Mississippi. So it's something that really has our attention. Y'all have laid out this this five-year plan that is really robust and, if, if, if all goes well, is going to get all of those, you know, 171,000 unserved locations service. Just tell me about how you're, how you're feeling about everything right now and how things are shaping up to be able to execute that five-year plan on schedule. I feel that it is a big responsibility, and our office is moving very deliberately to make sure that we go through all of the steps that are required by the feds, first of all, to unlock this money. Every other state is is doing the same things that we are. And we are about to open up a challenge process. That will be our next. Our office is about to open up a challenge process where local governments, nonprofits, and providers can challenge the map of service that we have up that we will be using to award projects. Uh, That map is at our website, at our agency website, which is beam.ms.gov. We would invite anybody to look at that map and see if we have their service correct. If it is incorrect, we need to know about it or somebody in your uh, community needs to know about it. Some of your elected leadership, we're in touch with every community. So uh, that is our our next step, and we know that is very important to make sure that we understand exactly where this money needs to go in Mississippi. Sally Doty is director of the BEAM office. Up next, doctors say black Mississippians are at an increased risk for cancer, a side effect of healthcare deserts across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, drawing attention to how healthcare deserts play a major role in high rates of cancer among people of color. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in Mississippi, though many types of the disease could be identified and treated early if a patient gets screened regularly. Dr. Lisa Richardson is Division Director of Cancer Prevention and Control at the CDC, and she says black Mississippians are more likely to die from cancer because it can often be difficult for them to get those important cancer screenings and treatments. You know, a lot of the things that how we grew up, where we live, the things we're exposed to, um, you know, recently we've been talking about the impact of racism 
which, you know, causes a tremendous amount of stress. And stress is, you know, the hormones created by stress can lead to, you know, DNA damage that can lead to cancer. So there's a lot of reasons. You know, what we usually talk about is screening. You know, if we drill down on different types of screening, you know, breast cancer and cervical cancer screening, black women actually report higher, you know, report being screened more often but they still end up dying more frequently than, you know, white women. And a lot of that is because screening is not just screening. You have, if you're a screened for a cancer, you need to have access to all of the follow-up and then to, you know, good therapy. And we know all of those things are challenges as we look at after someone is diagnosed with cancer. You know, then there are other challenges getting, you know, getting the treatment that's best for that cancer. In Mississippi, are women, do you know, able to get the care that they need for a variety of cancers? So I can speak to, you know, our mesh, the program that we run at the CDC, the uh, Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program. And in that program, we specifically make sure that women have access to diagnosis and then that they also have access to Medicaid, which can, you know, which will facilitate them getting into treatment. But as a broad general, you know, broad general category, you know, almost uninsurance, you know, I think in Mississippi, people are more likely to be uninsured in states like Georgia, you know, we're, we're like Mississippi, you know, here, we haven't expanded the Affordable Care Act, which does provide access to people for cancer care, or even to be screened and then get diagnosed and then get treated. So it, it's multifactorial. And that's why you have to understand really the local, what's going on locally to see, you know, how we might intervene to make things better because, you know, every community is unique. Do you visit different states and talk to healthcare providers about these issues? Well, on our side, we do the public health side, which is really about, you know, people not smoking, being physically active, those types of things. But in our program, yes, we do interact with people Um, at the state level. And because in our screening program, it's required, what I hope in particular is that others would take the example of what we do at CDC and implement it more widely. But yeah, we do, we do talk with providers, but where we are in public health, we talk to them and encourage them, but we don't really have a lever to make that happen. In terms of Medicaid expansion, the states that Mm -hmm. haven't expanded Medicaid, are you seeing more cancer, uh, different types of cancers, and higher rates of cancer? No, not necessarily, because I think the, you know, the Affordable Care Act really, I think in cancer, the biggest impact is where the diagnosis and where you get the treatment because they're so expensive. And so if we look at, and I can, I can dig up a couple of these articles, I can't remember exactly, but people have done um, assessments looking at expansion states versus non-expansion states, and we do see better outcomes in those states that have expanded Medicaid. Happy to look that up for you, just can't off the top of my head remember it. But in general, we do see that it does make a difference. Talking about men, a common one is prostate cancer, but of course there are yeah. other cancers, and in our state, heart disease is the number yeah. one killer. Mm-hmm. It is in the country as well. So um, one project that we're doing there in Jackson, Mississippi, where I don't know where you're located. We're doing a project in Jackson uh, with a group called Blacks Against Tobacco. I don't know if you've heard of them. 
but they're actually doing a project with my division, the Cancer Control Division, to look at why do people smoke? Because you're right. Now, cigarettes and smoking and tobacco, that's, that's the leading cause of heart disease as well. I mean, these risk factors cut across all of the chronic conditions mostly um, that we're impacted by because I'm African-American as well. So, um, so that group is looking at why do people smoke and going into the community in Jackson to talk to people about why they smoke, not just assuming that we know, right, That because we, we don't really understand a lot of things about why people do what they do. But what they're finding is that, you know, a lot of the things that we've had, the assumptions that we made may not be correct. For instance, um, there they found that if you go into, a, you know, the black community and ask people, you know, why do they smoke? They say, well, you know, a subset of people say, well, that's just what we do when we get together, like a social norm, which is very different than, than saying, oh, this is all about nicotine addiction, right, which would require a different sort of input. So what we're trying to do, at least in the cancer control division, is talk to the people who are impacted by these problems, try to understand why people are doing, you know, what they're doing, and then try to come up with a way to help those people in the community figure out a way to combat those issues. Dr. Lisa Richardson is Division Director of Cancer Prevention and Control at the CDC. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi programming. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. At 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, Don't Miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning, same time, 8.30, for the next Mississippi Edition. Today, in old technology... It's getting a second look. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech is supported by Fleet Device Management, giving businesses assurance about what actions IT can take on work computers down to the source code. More at fleetdm.com mdm. Back in the 1970s, the Tennessee Valley Authority built what remains today one of the largest energy storage devices in the world. It's what's known as a pumped storage hydropower plant. A pump takes water from the Tennessee River, shoots it up a giant shaft, and holds it there until power needs peak during the day. At that point, the water is allowed to drain back down, spinning turbines that can generate enough power for a million homes. It's almost like a gravity-powered battery, as big as a cathedral and buried deep inside a mountain. That's according to Robert Kunzig, a freelance journalist who recently wrote about this in depth for the publication Science. He says pump storage hydro is getting a lot of interest thanks to generous tax credits from the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act. To solve the climate crisis, we're going to need to decarbonize the electric grid. And to do that, we're going to need to build a whole lot of renewable energy, solar and wind. And the trouble with those uh, energy sources, they don't emit carbon, but they're very variable. So you need some way of storing the electricity they produce uh, when they're producing more than you need so that you have it available when they're producing less than you need at night or when the wind is calm. 
And pump storage hydropower is a proven technology for storing a lot of energy that you could use to tide you over a whole day or even longer when the renewable energy is not producing what you need to meet the needs of the grid. It's, it would just be a very reassuring uh, energy bank to have if you're a grid operator. Yeah, and you describe in your article how this allows utilities to bank that power on a scale that's way more significant than what they can do with lithium-ion batteries, which is another technology that's used to store power. Yeah, I mean, there are plants, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority plant I I visited uh, can basically supply a small city uh, for a day. There aren't battery plants that can do that. So this is the sort of thing that would give you confidence that you can build all the renewables you want and still have a grid that'll be reliably present even on a rainy winter day or week in winter. Mm -hmm. But this is incredibly expensive, right? It is very expensive up front. It costs billions of dollars to build one of these things because you've got to tunnel into a mountain to build your 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 power plant in a cave, and you have to build a giant shaft straight up through the mountain to connect the, the that cave to the upper reservoir. So there's tremendous civil engineering costs up front, but afterwards, there are pump storage hydropower plants around now that have been operating for about a century, and they just don't wear out. And the mm. cost per kilowatt hour delivered, but per electricity delivered over that time period is much cheaper than batteries, say. So they have high upfront costs, but low operating costs over the long term. That was journalist Robert Kunzik. Daniel Shin produced this episode. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. Your old vehicle could be your next donation to support Mississippi Public Broadcasting at mpbonline.org. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Smarter, better health care. More at bcbsms.com. Ridge of high pressure is going to dominate the weather picture here over the next couple of days. Temperatures will start to warm between now and Thursday. Oxford, plenty of sunshine. Our high temperatures this afternoon, upper 50s to near 60. Tonight, mainly clear to partly cloudy overnight lows will dip down to around around 35 degrees. Starkville, some frost to start the day. Otherwise, sunshine are high this afternoon into the lower 60s. Mainly clear and frosty tonight. And overnight low will drop down to around around 35 degrees. And in Natchez, plenty of sunshine today. Our high this afternoon into the low 60s. Just a few passing clouds overhead late tonight. And overnight low upper 30s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. 